0: Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness and for keeping us and protecting us. And we're here to learn what you've said in your word. Help us to know what it means, how we can believe it, and how we can be enabled by you to live lives that would be pleasing to you and honoring to you and help us through these difficult days, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I think what we'll do is we'll do a few verses and then refer to the homework that we sent because not everybody's here yet. And the homework had to do with um, providence, and which is really Acts, excuse me, Romans 8, 28 to the end. And then we also had homework about Hebrews 12, 25 to 29. And so if you weren't here and you didn't know about the homework, there's no grading. And so you can look at that right now and see what there is to learn in those texts. Romans eight, twenty-eight to the end of the chapter, and then also Hebrews chapter twelve. And let me tell you quickly why that was important. It says in Hebrews eight twenty eight, if you want to look ahead. Therefore, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful by it we may serve God acceptably acceptably with reverence and awe. Hebrews 8.28. So think about that. In the meantime, we were in Acts and so let's begin that PowerPoint here. I think we covered this, but there may be other questions. Hebrews excuse me, Acts 18.10. The Lord remember had appeared and spoken to Paul audible or clear words that were meaningful to Paul that wasn't some subjective impression and as we said last week the intent was to stay in Corinth and we also referenced 1 Corinthians 2, I think verse 3, where Paul said, I came to you with fear and trembling, and so on. would certainly um, shows that Acts is referring to the same period, and that's exactly the way it was. And remember, we, we covered this, Acts 18.10. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. So last week we discussed how it could be that God had people in the city, so stay there. Paul didn't know exactly who they were, so how was that accomplished? By preaching the gospel. And so one thing is for sure, people need to hear the gospel, who Christ is, what he did, why we need him, and what what he expects of us. So we talked about that. And then we reference this Acts 13:48, <clears throat> and we'll go back there again. When the Gentiles heard this, they, this was a previous event, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many has been appointed to eternal life believed. And so, I realize this is very difficult for many people, and it's probably not what we heard. In our background, whatever that may have been. But if we do know that there are people who are going to believe the gospel, it emboldens us to preach it. This morning I was looking up some verses as I was getting ready to come to church, and I found some in Acts where uh, they were, after persecution, they rejoiced. They rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer. Shame for the gospel. And I think we've been talking a lot about the shame honor system of the Old Testament and the New Testament times. And in the ancient Near East, shame was to be avoided at all costs, and honor was the greatest thing that someone could have. Honor was more important than anything. And so in some recent sermons, we talked about the fact that God himself God the Son came into our world, the very Creator of the world, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, and what happened? What did He willingly do, as prophesied in the Old Testament? He suffered shame. Who mocked Jesus when He was dying on the cross? Romans and Jews. Could you be? Yeah, could you? Could you even be? Is there any way to be more shamed? Than the creator of the universe allowing himself to be shamed by wicked sinners, that's the ultimate shame. And so the gospel involves preaching things that we know no one really wants to hear. And I think we tend to think, if we go back here, I have many people in the city, uh, no one will attack you, harm you, I know I tend to think, well, Paul was the most bold, fearless person that God ever called. But yet he says in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, I came to you in fear and much trembling. So the fear of man is something that takes a powerful work of grace to ever overcome. Honestly. And I looked it up in the Septuagint. There's a verse that says, the fear of man is a stumbling block, or it's a trap. And I may be wrong about this, but I think it's on in the uh, Septuagint. So it's like a, the, the trigger of a trap. And So the fear of man just pounds us, every Christian. And the, the default position is I, want to, I don't want to be hated. I don't want to, uh, people to reject me. Everybody feels that way, and we're not to give needless offense. We're not to be offensive in things that really are a matter of Christian liberty. But on the other hand, the gospel will offend. If we read Luke Acts, I don't see how you could come to any other conclusion. But what emboldened the apostles is to know that God is honored when we preach the truth. God is honored when we tell people what God did, who Christ is, and whether they hate us or love us, God will use it. Last week we looked at set in order, antitaso and Tasso. and there are a lot of good scholarly material about that, and we talked about that. And let me quote this here from Dr. Schnabel. The patterns of the reaction of Jews to the gospel that Luke reports in the book of Acts cover the entire range from neutral listening to positive acceptance to emphatic rejection. Luke reports for Paul's missionary work in Pisidian Antioch in elaborate detail, Luke reported that, that the whole range of reactions all these things happened. Some people will love you. Some people will reject and say, yeah, that's great. And then later, run away. Parable of the soils. Uh, How's that play out in Acts? Remember Simon the sorcerer? Oh, yeah, this is great. But then what happened later? He said, well, I'll give you money if you give me the power to impart, impart the Holy Spirit. Well, that didn't turn out so good for him, did it? did it. And uh, and Peter said to him you and your money can perish together you have no part nor lot in this matter. The word lot is used in Ephesians there for Christians who do have a lot because not because of merit but because of God's grace. So some people will respond and they'll honor God and have a love for the truth. Quite frankly, as we hear from people through articles that are published on Critical Issues Commentary, it's hard to tell people what they need to hear because we know it's not what they've been taught. It's rarely what they've been taught, and I sometimes I just expect, well, this person is going to say, "Take me off the list. I don't, I don't want to hear from you again." That happened. It didn't happen that way, but I thought it would. Someone. Said, "Well, Agabus, because we were talking about apostles and prophets, remember Agabus in Acts?" And he demonstratively, "Hey, I said that." He tied a rope around himself and said, "This is what will happen to you. This will happen to the man if you go to Jerusalem." And and so the idea was, well, Agabus is a prophet, and he gave a prophecy. But Paul, this people have been taught. Did 't listen, and that 's why he got arrested and suffering. Has anybody heard that? We certainly heard that. And I said, well, I don't think that's a good reading. And I said that to somebody. And the reason was this: if you read Luke Acts as a two-volume work, and the author determines the meaning, did Luke portray Paul's trip to Jerusalem as a failure because Paul didn't listen to Agabus? He did not. That's why, to understand this, we need to understand the author's intent. So last week, we uh, asked, as part of our homework, to look at Romans 8, 28 through 37, I believe. And now we also want to learn more about the Doctor of Providence. And so uh, as a test case, if you don't mind, Brian, I gave him one, those articles, and he called back and said, thank you. And it's all marked up, so we can't copy his. <laughs> but uh, um, uh, uh, some here. she's got them. Yes. Right. So if you, on the way out or whenever, you can have one or you can get it now. Yes. And there, everything can be judged. I believe in the priesthood of every believer, authority of scripture, priesthood of every believer. we published articles that say, say that prophecy is not somebody standing up and said, I thus say it's the Lord, and then, no, that's wrong. It's bringing out valid implications, applications of scripture. And the starting point is the author, who's inspired by the Holy Spirit, determines the meaning. What we can judge is whether it's a valid implication or not. Providence includes good and evil. The moral law of God revealed in the Bible tells us what's good and what's evil Christians are often in very difficult compromise situation where you don't see a good answer I've had that so many times where this is not going to be good and this is not going to be good so what do we do when we're in one of those situations Eric's been talking about wisdom and I've Uh, recently many times said, I don't know what to do so I'm going to ask God for wisdom it doesn't mean God says yea thus saith the Lord you must do this and not that it's amazing the ways wisdom comes to you and sometimes you just make a decision and that's uh, knowing that God will give us wisdom if we love the truth and we want to know what's the right thing to do what does it say in James? God is not stingy with wisdom. God won't be angry with you if you ask him for wisdom. I think the King James says he abradeth not. The older I get, the more I remember the first Bible I read, which was the King James. What does abradeth not mean? I finally looked it up. I think it means you won't be chided or treated. God will say, well, why are you asking me for wisdom? He's not, he's not stingy with it. So as we go through these things in Acts, we're learning things. So what happened was I thought, well, if I tell the person who asked me what I believe Luke means, they're probably just going to drop off the list and not listen to us again, but I have to do that. So I wrote an email saying, well, I believe this based on reading Luke Acts. Jesus Uh, in Luke Acts, from Luke 9.51 all the way to the entry into Jerusalem, the entire narrative is a journey to Jerusalem to be rejected. Kenneth Bailey showed that better than anybody I've read. And so I believe, and this could be judged if it's a good reading, that Luke is showing us that Jerusalem... Has a future, but at this point, Jerusalem is the one who rejects the prophets sent to her. It's very much clear. How often I would gather to you under my wings, you wouldn't have it. So Jesus gets rejected in Jerusalem. Does that mean the whole process changed? No. Paul was determined to go to Jerusalem, even though Agabus and they said, Don't go, don't go. What did Paul say? Why are you doing this and breaking my heart? I'm willing to not only go there, but to die if it needs me. And then what did they say? The will of the Lord be done. So I wrote that back to someone, figuring that's the last time they'll ever hear from me, or want to hear from me. But I believed it was the right reading. And I got an email back, and she said, Thank you, thank you, that's very helpful. So on that basis, I I don't know what to say sometimes to people, but if there's a way to learn the truth and we have a gift from God, which is to love the truth, we'll rejoice to hear it. And if the disciples rejoice to suffer shame after they've been mistreated, everyone who affirms the truth is going to suffer shame from somebody because the fallen world doesn't love the things of God did you know that and so shame is a big issue and we need to understand how much it is and so even Paul who was a former enemy saved by Christ needed encouragement to go on and preach the truth it's a very good helpful thing to know And so, as we study this, we need to believe in the sovereignty of God and and know that God will use even something that people consider shameful to bring forth his sovereign purposes. And then Paul believed and knew that that was clearly from God. God had told him, so he stayed there. He settled there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And I mentioned 1 Corinthians 2, 2 through 4. And this statement, If, if, you, if I, I don't remember how far we got last week, but here's the statement I'm making. And feel free to disagree with any of these things if you think I'm not making a valid implication. This one I think is hard to disagree with. When the word of God is purely taught, Those who love the truth will respond and grow. Can anyone attest to that being the case? That example I just showed you was very much that. If I would have said, well, Agabus, I think that's just what Luke was telling us. Thank you, Eric, recently for... um, It's a gift from God if you can preach from a genealogy, and people come home and say, That's great. I didn't think that was possible. Go ahead. Well, that statement
1: would appear to absolutely be true because we just learned that Paul was scared and he got a message from God that said, Don't be scared and preach the word boldly because I have many people there. So when the word of God is preached, God knows who is elect. Our but and, we don't. And,
0: but we don't. Right. And I think so much damage over to Eric over here, uh, whoever has the mic, the other mic. A lot of damage is done by false implications being brought out from the doctrine of election on anybody's side of it. And so let's just say one thing that I think has been gotten wrong throughout church history. No one is God's elect because of genetics. The ethnic national Israel is an elect nation, but at this point they're still not serving God. They're in rebellion. Jerusalem rejects the prophets. That's what Paul found out. And so a lot of people will say, well, obviously I'm God's elect because I was born into whatever religion where I came from. Dutch Reformed was the primary thing around. And, but that doesn't make you a Christian being born into a Dutch Reformed Family. Go ahead, Eric.
2: Yeah, I just, on the subject of when the word of God is purely taught, those who love the truth will respond and grow. I just thought of a great example of that. Um, Years, probably two or three years ago, uh, Steve, who I will not use his last name, because we're on, you know, uh, Steve and I, and a bunch of us were down doing some evangelism in Uptown. And Steve and I were standing at the corner of Lake Street and Hennepin, waiting for the light to change, I was right behind Steve, and Steve was standing next to a young man. And just as the light turned green, Steve turned to the guy and he said, "So, what do you do for spirituality?" And and I'm I'm behind Stephen, and I'm thinking, what a dumb thing to say. I'm just laughing. I'm thinking, you know, the light is turning green. This is the most inopportune situation (laughs) and and it's like what a beginning conversational opener because doing some street evangelism the the hard part is figuring out a good conversational starter so he just asked that question and amazingly this young man as they were walking across the street conversed with Steve you know they, they had quite a conversation going so by the time we got across the street It was a good conversation. And so Steve and I visited with this guy. He was a guy in his 20s. Now, it turned out that he was either a preacher. I think he was a preacher's son. And I believe it was a Lutheran uh, preacher's son. But we shared just the pure gospel, which is, you know, we're all sinners. We're depraved sinners. And we are hopeless without uh, we have to repent. Yeah, uh, you know the whole thing. And you know, he said nobody's ever told me this. He said when I was a, y- a little kid, I, I sort of, you know, uh, I, I remember when he was just a little kid. He he had sort of professed some sort of faith. And but he said, wow, thank you guys. And it was just, it was just a great experience. We talked for about a half hour. Her, so I think her, that's just a good example of that.
0: When John MacArthur was in town he told a story about sitting next to a Muslim and asked him if he believed in sin. Oh yeah, I'm going to to Dallas to sin right now. I don't want (laughs) to steal John MacArthur's story, but one preacher we had in said, I think I can uh, show you that God exists just by who sits next to me on airplanes. And that was somebody else. I'm not saying that's a good proof for the existence of God, but Providence includes a lot of events, everything. In fact, that's what the article, uh, we'll have them available if more people want them. If you read that article that we wrote in 2009, it covers all the key texts uh, that are used. And some of the quotes are from people that you may not like as far as their commentary on it. But let me make a statement about that. And then then we'll get to Paul. I don't believe we can have an effective gospel, learn the truth and understand the definition of the church if we cling to parochial concerns above all else. Okay? And so one can easily say, I'm this group and what you say, whether it's a Christian group or whatever, If it doesn't fit with what I already believe then I won't hear you and also I think one of the things that's really been damaging to evangelicalism is that we don't want to read the books of anybody but those who already agree with us and I'll make a statement that I I know to be true but it won't probably make a lot of friends judgment We can't judge truth and error based on publishing houses, where you got an education, who you like, because I've seen people do that. Well, I won't read anything published by Baker, Zondervan, Moody. I mean, every publishing, house. Hendrickson, what's this one? Here's Baker, Seasons of Refreshing, very helpful book. I read several. You can't discern by publishing house. Wouldn't that be a simple way to always be right? But, what that does, for example, Jesus only Pentecostals won 't read anything unless it 's published by a Jesus only Pentecostal. Well, how do you get out to learn anything else? How do you determine the meaning of scripture? There are people that say the only verse that matters is acts two thirty eight So, what happens if that 's your statement? Well, they say unless you 're baptized in the name of Jesus holy. You're damned. Because we only know Acts 2.38. Go ahead, Paul.
3: Uh, The commenting about the uh, second line there, when the word of God is purely taught, those who love the truth uh, will respond and grow. Uh, As it relates to personal reading of Scripture, uh, the word of God is purely taught taught by the, by the Holy Spirit when you're personally reading the scriptures, and those who love the truth will respond, and part of that response may be repentance. What I'm doing is wrong. I'm getting the ethereal intent, and what I'm doing is wrong. Therefore, growth will happen. But it may not always, we think of taught many times as somebody out there, an expert, a pastor, a speaker, or that's taught. But I think the Holy Spirit... And
0: even in a whole meeting, if we search the scriptures, the Bereans... Not all of them believed, but they were noble-minded enough to look. And what were they looking for? What was taught to the, at Berea that they had to see if it was really in the scripture? That Jesus Christ, even though he was uh, suffering Messiah, even though he uh, suffered a shameful fate as far as they're thinking, well, Gentiles mocked the Jewish Messiah well they searched and what were they searching for is there any scripture that says the Messiah will suffer what scriptures do they have the Old Testament what scriptures did they search well you can look at uh, Peter's speech in Acts 2 other ones in Acts 2 3 and 4 uh, Stephen's speech in Acts 7 Paul's long sermon recorded from Acts 13 and we can find out that what the early disciples preached that the suffering Messiah who sits at the right hand of God Psalm 110 and verse 1 all of those scriptures that are cited does it say this and the answer is of course yes it would be hard to say that it doesn't they tried to. Some people when presented with that believed but they searched. So what I've been saying lately and I think this is very important a whole chunk of the world right now is Christendom. Somebody has numbers that I don't have. How many people live somewhere that's considered Christendom? Whether it's Roman Catholicism Eastern Orthodoxy Lutheran state reformed state Um, Lutheran wasn't that Germany official uh, state religion Christendom isn't the kingdom of God it isn't Christianity it's part of the world out there and so the claim that I make is that Christendom is a mission field And if we look at it that way, it doesn't seem like a bad thing to preach the gospel to people who say they already have it. Does that make sense? Using wisdom and understanding. Paul didn't go everywhere. He had places he didn't go, door closed, he went somewhere else. He stayed in Corinth. But it's never a sin to preach the gospel. Is that correct? so Christendom is a mission field and I think that the decision people have in their mind is what version of Christendom should I go join but whatever you join and I'm not saying it's a sin to join something the fact is Christendom isn't Christianity Christianity the church are those who know Christ through the gospel have been born of God And have received an unshakable kingdom. Part of our homework. Look at this. Was it that Hebrews 12? Is that correct? Yep. Let's look at that right now and then you can discuss it. If you didn't do the homework, don't feel bad. There's no grade. I admit I was even looking at my homework this morning before I came. Okay. Hebrews 12... 28, And I printed it in like four or five different translations here. Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, since we receive, and, and I think the tense in the Greek is present, present, active, indicative, are receiving, I don't remember if it's the participle or not. So it's all due the that. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, the author of Hebrews isn't saying, we already have the kingdom, but we're receiving one that cannot be shaken. Is there such a thing as the kingdom of God that's just going to fall apart? Not the real kingdom of God. So what is that kingdom that we are receiving that cannot be shaken? Does God or does the, Paul ever teach in any of the epistles or in Acts that were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's Colossians 1. Is that right? Eric, do you want to...
3: Yeah, Colossians 1, 13 and
0: 14. Yeah, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. So whatever else happens, if you believe the gospel, you've already been transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. And that doesn't mean there's no future judgment there's no millennium in the future and that there aren't more things that are going to happen but your citizenship in heaven is already true in Philippi they were a colony of Rome that had been populated by military veterans and and it was a good thing they were proud of their citizenship but what did Paul write to them when he was in prison in Rome your citizenship is in heaven. If I got that wrong, somebody could look in Philippians. I'm going to preach on that a little bit as an application next week. Go ahead, Brian.
1: <clears throat> well, actually,
0: Bob, your
1: assignment was verses 25 to 29.
0: Right. I just picked out one. Yes. Go ahead.
1: Okay. So, in normally we see a uh, 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 greater to lesser. Comparisons yes. in the Bible, but there's an instance here, and I don't know how many times it happens in the Bible. But here's a greater to lesser, lesser
0: to greater.
1: Yeah, lesser to greater. But here we have those who did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth. Much less will be as much less will be
0: escaped who turned away from Him, who
1: warns from heaven.
0: The so gra- we have the greater to greater yeah it was comparing list. Sinai yeah. to Jesus reigning at the right hand of God right. it was comparing the old covenant to the new yeah. good reading you did your homework yeah Brian is very kind he brought coffee this morning <laughs> um, for me and I, I, love, I love to drink it so, we're, so the, there's a, that's a good reading Eric, or anybody have anything more to add to that one as we continue to consider this? So here's the application I would make to that. If you've believed the gospel of Jesus Christ and trusted him alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, as a gift of God, the whole thing is a gift of God, trusting in Christ alone, believing the truth, Transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son that's not going to go away no matter what happens in history and that uh, where was that in Luke don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in the book of life is that right so what's the What's the greater something that can't ever go away go ahead see it's so interesting
1: because we have Moses on the mountain and lightning fire People are falling on the ground. Don't give me any more, God. We're all going to die. And yet, right after that, they're making idols. And <laughs> they they so make and a so
0: golden but. calf, right? And you know so, why? They so, weren't afraid of the golden calf. They get yeah. mad. Well, actually, didn't Moses grind it up, and make him drink it?
1: Right, right. So you have your scripture. creator, <laughs> but now what we have is the word of God. With the truth being true. Yeah. So, how much less? I mean, if you couldn't
0: believe observing that. Well, b- b- good point. And before that happened, they came out of Egypt. Yes. How could you be in Egypt, the firstborn, the blood, the, the miracles, the pillar of cloud by day? No, fire by day, cloud by night. How did I do it? I got that backwards. Yeah. So they could see it. Okay, that has to be nice. And the whole Red Sea parts, they go through. Yeah, then the drowse, the whole army. They get manna from heaven, water, God appears, and they get to Sinai. I think this calf brought us out. Do you really believe that? No, they don't. They're just don't want to listen. And so go ahead, uh, Rich. Isn't that indicative, though, how we are
3: today in the evangelical church? I mean, we hear about Jesus, we hear about the cross of Christ, we hear about all these things, what Christ has done for us, and they go, oh, yeah, I'm saved because of what I did, because of an act of my own free will. It's almost identical. Because we go to ourselves, we make ourselves an idol, kind of like what they did. After hearing all about what Jesus does, we go, oh, I'm saved because I accepted Christ 20 years ago, and I've got the date written down in my Bible, and I was very sincere, and I really, 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 really meant it. So your faith basically becomes convoluted. Yes, it's in Christ, but it's also in me. So isn't that
0: kind of the same thing, what we do today? That's a good segue into the other homework. Providence. Romans. Eight twenty-eight to 37. Now I'll tell you what, uh, it's really hard to accept what God actually said and the reason it's possible to re- trust and to believe it is that we're, we don't know everything God knows. It would be too much. I—a good friend of mine who went out and studied at Fuller and then a lot of bad things were taught there. But when he was in town one time, we were in Bible college together. I sat and we talked about this. And I finally gave him all this evidence. And he says, It must be really hard to be God. <laughs> well, that's a, and I don't say that to mock him, he's a wonderful brother. But the fact is, we're not God. And God can uh, know everything and yet execute his plan, bring glory to his name, save a people, and that he knows everything. And here's why he said that. I said, foreknowledge doesn't make it easier because what God foreknows will most certainly happen. And if that doesn't change anything well that's when he made that comment and so the only we wouldn't know details now I think I said last week you don't derive theology from nature let me mitigate that just a little bit nature tells us there is a God and makes us without excuse that is theology Romans 1 Eric taught through that I have too Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God Nature tells us God created the whole world out of nothing. And if you won't accept that, that is theology. So I want to correct myself. But general revelation gives us the details we need. Please, if if that doesn't make sense, I I don't want anybody to be ashamed for asking a question. Go ahead. I I just think you meant special revelation. Special. Yeah. Thank you. Always correct me. Yeah, special revelation, not general revelation, means here's the details. That's the Bible, the truth that we know is from God. General revelation tells us there is a God. Now, what form of revelation has there ever been? Evidence from science, general revelation, the creation, entropy, he molecule, that's what got my attention. And the Bible. Sinai, Moses, the prophets, Tanakh, New Testament. What form of revelation has there ever been that humans haven't rejected and sinned against? Christ. I would assume the answer is every ver- version. People don't like it. Send one of my brothers. Send one of my brothers. Then they'll listen. And what did Jesus say? They won't listen. No, they're not going to listen then. I'm just going for memory here. Oh, no, no. and Really, the capstone, in my mind, is what happens in John. What happened in John 11? With Lazarus. Eric calls um, a four-day one who stinks. Decay sets in on the fourth day. So you would assume and everybody knew that, Lazarus came from the grave so that, what does that tell anybody? has there ever been a prophet, an ordinary prophet who could just raise a four day one? no, but, the, but that happened now what's the point of the sign that you would believe, that's what it says well what happened to Lazarus after he was walking around? Romans 12, John 12. They plotted to kill him. That's how hard their human heart is. And we can't just say, well, those Jews, they were really hard-hearted, but if I saw that, I'd believe. Really? Well, I saw evidence that God created the world out of nothing in biochemistry class in um, the spring of 1971 when the professor put the heme molecule on the board, which is a indication of how carbon-carbon bonding works, and in the middle is an iron molecule, he drew that entire thing in front of 300 people, on this big, huge, well, it was, I don't know if it was a, a projection. We didn't have PowerPoint back then. But it was the whole thing was on the board. We could all see it. And he turns around didn't tell us why he did that. He said, if one single carbon bonding in this entire molecule was different, we'd all be dead and life wouldn't exist. Because this molecule would not be able to have oxygen attached to it, carried to the blood, to the cells that need it, and then released. So here I am appalled that anybody would be a Christian and I look at that God exists so I was really excited and became a good person and a Christian no (laughs) I got worse I got worse I was more angry but it's not for lack of evidence it's for lack of God changing us from the inside out and so to to understand we have to start with the greatest the greatest is to be forgiven of your sins given an entrance to an unshakable kingdom it's a complex event but we've already been transferred in and then believe the promises of God now in that context, I have a note I had written in here. How do you discern a true work of the Spirit? By the way, we did a video, and I think it's on the front page of the CICMinistry.org site. How to discern a true work of the Spirit? I've gotten feedback on that saying, "You're limiting God," but they 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 shifted categories. The issue isn't what God can do. The issue isn't what the Holy Spirit can do or even has done the issue is how do we know it's a work of the Spirit because Antichrist will do lying signs and wonders it isn't all just fake there are real evil things that happen that are supernatural but they are pointing us to what the lie so the issue isn't what God can do, what the Holy Spirit can do because he did many things But how do we discern a work of the Spirit? And so the claim that I've made is that the Holy Spirit confesses Christ, including, that's not just say the word, the whole personal work of Christ. Okay? That's how we discern. That's not limiting God. So this is about how we discern a true work of the Spirit, not a restriction. of, on what the third person of the Trinity can do. I put that in my notes. Ironically, some from the New Apostolic Reformation uh, claim mighty works of the Spirit are being done, but do not testify about Christ, rather than, but rather themselves. Does the Holy Spirit come so that a, a preacher can say, look how great I am? He got the right answer. <laughs> that's not a true work of the spirit. It's blasphemy. It is. They blaspheme. So uh, that's, they failed the test. How about Gallio? By the way, I got graphics today. I think you'll be able to see it. While Gallio was pro-council of Achaia, the Jews of one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. The word there, I think, is bema, bema, which would be a raised platform where someone would sit and they'd come and they'd have their court case. So this uh, incident is like others in X. I I think uh, Dr. Tannehill calls these type scenes. In other words, there would be different cases about the same thing and so this sort of thing happened also in Acts 16 19 through 24 and 17 5 through 9 and one was in I believe Philippi and the other in Thessalonica but let's look at historicity now I'm sure you probably can't see that but let me tell you what this is and I'm gonna cite from the source here you know how crazy it is to say the Bible is a myth? If you say that, you're asking to be one who has mud on your face or shaved. Oh, none of these things happened. Oh, really? Well, no, it couldn't be. Oh, really? Well, here's Gallio. And this is a Greek inscription. Let me read what I have here in my notes from the slide Paul's trial before Gallio is one of the most important chronological markers in the New Testament, since it allows for a fairly precise correlation between an event in the New Testament and a specific date in extra biblical history. Near the end of Paul's stay in Corinth, he is brought before Gallio who is said in Acts 18.12 to have been pro of Achaia at the time. Continuing to read the material that came with this slide. I, I bought these, by the way. <coughs> Gallio became, excuse me, the inscription pictured above, which is found in Delphi, implies that Gallio became pro consul on July 1, A.D. 51 a d fifty one that 's what he was there and here is proof from archaeology Gallio by the way it 's all camps gamma alpha lambda lambda galio Iota, omega That's what that 's what what 's in there that 's in Greek it was actually Gallio he was in the place that Luke said he was at the time Luke said he was. And it's been proven. So the higher critics of the rationalists were saying, it's all myth, it didn't happen, it's all made up, and that the pagan myths are just as good as anything the Christians say. They keep getting proven wrong. The Dead Sea Scrolls prove that part of the texts that were cited in Acts dated before Acts was written, have the same reading out of the Old Testament saying the same thing. And so it couldn't be a Passover plot. This already was there. The Christians didn't concoct this. Does anybody know more than I do about the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, you can look that up. But So let's go on on this, and then we've got some things we need to discuss yet. So July 1, AD 51, he probably left his post in mid-September of the same year. The inscription was likely set up at Delphi in AD 52. Paul and Gallio, and then there's a journal. The inscription was photographed in the Delphi Museum before it was put on this current display. So, here's what we know. The Bible is true. It's authoritative. It's not asking us to, to believe myths; it It's historically accurate. And Jesus really did die on the cross as the Bible says. No one claimed they found a dead body in that grave. That was Christ. Matthew tells us that the Roman soldiers, probably, now Eric is going to be preaching through Matthew, they probably had better data than most people. What happened to the Roman soldiers? Go ahead and tell us. Go ahead so they can hear you.
3: Yeah, they were paid off to say (laughs) that the disciples stole the body. And then, uh, interestingly enough, that was the story. You um, showed me that writing between Trifo the Jew Oh, yeah, Justin Martyr. And Justin Martyr. They were and still
0: saying the same story. They're still saying
3: the same thing. And then somewhere about the medieval period, the story changes. And we see this in Toldoth Yeshua and the Talmud that all of a sudden now they claim that the gardener stole the body. But this, the idea is someone's still in the body because they knew that the body wasn't did, there. Did
0: anybody ever say, oh, uh, the body is still in the grave? No. No. So here's what they all agreed on the tomb was empty. The Bible says that Jesus, the resurrected Christ, appeared to witnesses. We'll see that in First Corinthians. I read about a skeptic who went through all of the evidence and came to the conclusion that Christ was raised, but he didn't come to faith. He said, well, I was just for the Jews. But that's not the claim. So we're not telling cleverly devised fables. We're not believing myths. Believing cold, sober truth. Remember Doug Paget? Get rid of the adjectives. Truth. You got your truth. Have anybody heard that? That's your truth. Well, if it's not truth, I don't want it. It's, well, there's a lot of people that postmodernity says truth is relative to the thinker. Go ahead. Oh, that's right. It was um, Pilot, right? Yeah, Pilot asked. Is a postmodern? <laughs> yeah. How could Pilot be postmodern when modern hadn't showed up? Pilot says, what is truth? <laughs> yeah. Do what you want. Uh, Julie, back here. I, a on that. I remember hearing a while back. About... Oh, oh, okay. People want to hear your question.
4: I remember hearing a while a long time ago, like something about the the wraps, the clothing that they wrapped Jesus in.
0: Well, the Shroud of Turan?
4: Yeah, okay, so the way they prepared a body for burial at the time, I can't remember if this was denied or if it, you know, maybe you can recall. I remember
0: seeing about it, yeah. Um,
4: Like so my my recollection is that the clothing they wrapped him in would have been somewhat rigid, not soft, and that his body was missing from the interior of these hardened like
0: Yeah, there, there I've heard of that. I don't know that we wanna it doesn't have the same weight as this because the shout of Turan. Have you heard of anybody else heard of that? I'm not sure what to make of that. This is really clear. But yeah, there's been the. But sh- is there I don't is know. there
4: is there validity to that? I don't know. I mean, historically, he, that, that would make it undeniable that he, that he was resurrected. I mean, it kind of I seems don't. like an airtight case from God's perspective.
3: You know, I think the only difficult, Julie, was just who was in there. Um, in that, the one thing that really is powerful, as Bob has mentioned, is the empty tomb. Everyone agreed that it was empty. In fact, that's the point. At, if you remember, in Acts two, when Peter is preaching at Pentecost. He cites that David knew that Psalm 1610, which the Holy Wind would not see decay, nor would his his body be abandoned to Hades. David knew, he said, that that applied to the Christ. But what's interesting is David was in the tomb at that time. They knew exactly where his tomb was, and they could affirm that he was rotting and decaying. But all they had to do to say, hey, Jesus isn't true either because he's still in the tomb rotting it up. All they had to do is provide the body, and they never could do it. Right, And so that really is why the empty tomb is so powerful. They just never could provide the well, body.
0: And they were right on the scene of history, Amen. and they knew which tomb it was.
3: They knew exactly. Yeah,
0: go ahead. And then we got to go to providence, and a couple questions remain from last week.
1: I would say also that through God's providence, since we don't know until history unfolds, whenever we see these historical documents or artifacts or anything like that, the discovery of those, it's without doubt that upholds the truth of God. So if something comes up that's an artifact or we think this, we think that, we really don't know, and it's kind of I'm not saying that the Shroud of Turn is not true or if it is true, but always when a historical artifact is found, there's no question about it.
0: Right, it's very clear. And it's interesting, go ahead back to Steve, and then we're going to, oh, go ahead, Jessica, and then Steve. I think Steve. That-
4: I was just looking. I wanted to see what it actually said about the cloths because I remembered one of the Gospels mentions the cloths. Okay. And it's in Luke. And it says, In stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed. If you're going to steal the body, would you unwrap it first? A decaying body?
0: It was all folded up. and (laughs)
4: Yeah. Yeah, Dead people
0: fold up their... Okay, then... Okay. Okay. A question came up last week about, I believe, Christian liberty vis-a-vis civil government. Is that correct? And the reason it came up was because of our reference to, where was that? Well, remember in Acts 14? 13.48. And the same Greek word was used in... Romans 13.1, let everyone be subjected to the govern, governing authorities. And so the question was about when the governing authorities tell us to do things that violate our conscience or we believe are, are just wrong and we're not going to do it. Is that correct? And I, frankly, I believe this is a matter of Christian liberty, and particularly when it comes to how we find health care, take care of ourselves, and so on. And so that's really a hot topic right now, and we can discuss that. I believe it's Christian liberty. Anybody want to... Eric, do you want to mention anything about it?
3: You know, I I think one of the most helpful articles you ever did going back to your CIC was the uh, binding and loosing. and. In binding and loosing, what we're morally bound to, that's what the Hebrews meant by it. the the rabbis, is binding had to do with what you're morally obligated to do or not to do. Loosed meant you had freedom. And so what we have to do as Christians when we look at any issue, like whether or not we should get a vaccine or not get a vaccine, it's not an issue where we're morally bound in the new covenant, thou shall not get a vaccine. And so, therefore, it's an area of Christian liberty that we have to use our minds and make the best decision for ourselves. The same thing would be uh, regarding where we live. Um, I remember R.C. Sproul telling the story where he was going to move and someone said, Thus saith the Lord, you're supposed to live in Dallas. But he said, you know, where in the scriptures am I morally bound to live in Dallas? So the point is, where the Bible doesn't state that we're morally obligated one way or the other there's there's freedom and I think that that's how we should look at this conundrum that we have when we're trying to be healthy as people Um, it's not always easy to decide some people think the vaccine is this or some people think the vaccine is that but at the end of the day it's not sin to do one or the other we have to be those who are very clear about that. And
0: don't we need to support one another Amen. No matter what. Bear one another's burdens. yeah. also, we need to realize that Christians give no offense to Jew and the Greeks are the Church of God. Now, the Church of God in Paul's day wasn't defined as Christendom. It was actually saved people. And if we love and care for one another and pray for one another, and even when uh, the worst things we can think about happen, we have to really be there and show up and love and pray and I don't know anybody that knows what the best thing to do is in this really weird world we're living in. I will say it's important to learn from people who've been through things. And uh, my uh, grandparents, my my grandpa Sapi was a World War I veteran. My dad was a World War II veteran. My uncles were World War II veterans. And a lot of really, really bad, horrible things happen in history. And the reason I gave the assignment, Providence, and from Romans 8, and I hope that I think these are available. And it would be fair if you don't mind some of your time getting taken up next week. Anybody wants one, you don't have to blame me, but just see if you can process the scriptures. And I think our default position is assume. God's in charge of the good things, the devil's in charge of the bad things. And I believed that until I learned better. Because in history that's called Manichaean dualism, if I got my categories right. No, God's in charge of everything. And he allows evil, he uses evil, he overcomes evil for a greater good than would have been had not had evil not been allowed in his providence to exist somebody oh, yeah yeah,
3: I just had a question about uh, the binding and loosing because doesn 't the scripture say whatever we bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever we loose shall be loosed
0: from good. heaven so good. very good, valid question
3: yeah, absolutely, you know the grammar what that 's affirming is it's literally it shall have been bound in heaven, meaning i don 't go around and just say you know what i 'm going to bind as a member of the church as a believer, this certain thing, I'm going to make it up whole cloth, the idea is that it's already been decided in heaven. But the question is, how do we know what's been decided in heaven? Will we have the scriptures? Right. So the grammar actually supports the idea that whatever we bind on earth shall have already been bound and determined in heaven and where that's revealed is in the scriptures.
0: And it was given and so to so that's the how apostles. we do binding. Yeah, it that's was given right. to Peter and the other apostles. That's right. So if
3: someone tells you you can't live in Denver, and you want to live in Denver, just say, can you show me where that's bound in the scriptures that I, thou shalt not live in Denver. And if they can't do it, right. you have the freedom to do it. That's why Bob was talking about Agabus. Agabus said what would happen to Paul. Paul had every right because the Lord didn't say, thus saith the Lord, you shall not go to Jerusalem. And therefore, he wasn't morally bound not to go to Jerusalem. That was his
0: liberty. Well,
3: did Paul,
0: um... I can hear you. I'll repeat it. Well, didn't he, I don't want to say suffer, but didn't Paul deal with the fact that he wanted
3: to talk to the Jews his whole life? I mean, that was his, he just wanted that because he thought he was because having studied at the feet of Gamaliel and uh, being a, what, uh, disciple of all disciples, what did he say, apostle, or Jew he of was, all he Jews. He was
0: well-trained, yeah. Yes,
3: all of his training. So he thought, surely they'll listen to me because I was zealous in my
0: um, Judaism. Right, but, but, but that wasn't the point because by after that he'd already been converted. What? He, Paul went to Jerusalem because in Luke Acts we see Jerusalem won't listen to him. Yeah. And so uh, one more and then we got to quit. We're already over time. But that was his heart. Did you have a... Go ahead and bring it over to to Scott or whoever wanted it here. Mm
1: -hmm. Sorry for going late. I, I was just going to say that the liberty, Christian liberty, regarding the vaccine uh, is true whether you're under a mandate or not, because the
3: mandates are illegal?
0: (laughs) Well, if you're judging that, I don't know who's under a a mandate at this time, but some people are. Many employers. Right, employers have done so. So far. Okay, read this. Let me tell you, my answer is, this is a matter of Christian liberty, but you have to think about the consequences in your own situation. So I would hate to tell someone, you must do thus and so, who may have a family of five people that needs a husband with a job. You may still say no. God will give me another job. I'm I'm not the judge. I'm not writing the Talmud. But ethical dilemmas are real, Okay, They are real. And so I'll tell you what what ethic, I believe, is biblical. Graded absolutism. And that means that we choose the greater good, and the greater good is determined by categories taught in Scripture. And so in the case of Rahab, the greater good was to lie, even though God was providentially using her, And she lied. She was in the genealogy. She's extolled in Hebrews. And she lied. It's a sin to lie. So get together with your family. Decide what is the right thing. What's the evidence? What's my decision? And make it. And there should never be recriminations from any other Christian that you made the wrong choice. Does that help at all? And uh, my point, and I don't know how well I said it last week, we have to be patient and loving and kind to each other. We're all living in a really bad place. Amen. And there's people who haven't had water, they're, they have no electricity, they're underwater, they're dying, their loved ones float out to sea, and they can't even email us because they don't have anything fact, as we close let's pray for them and ask for God to give all of us wisdom okay thank you Lord for your kindness and your goodness and your mercy and everyone has loved ones who have suffered some kind of harm some live places where we maybe can't hear from them some have gotten sick we've lost people to diseases to different things people are hurting people are afraid we need you, Lord. Help us. Give us wisdom. And may we love and pray for one another and have your wisdom. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry for going along, but keep praying for one another.